Eternal life. How would you define eternal life? Okay. So eternal life starts when, I'm hearing, when you accept who? Who's the Lord? Okay. So when your heart says it's yes to Jesus, what does it mean to say you're yes to Jesus? Because a lot of times it seems like our thing is, um, we think of the gospel as legal butt coverage for after, when I, for after I die. Am I right? I'm either going to go to heaven or hell later when I die. And eternal life is if I do what? Pray a prayer. Say a thing. Ag- agree with a thing. And what did we say Jesus' gospel was? If kind of the standard American gospel is, you're a dirty, rotten sinner, but you can still go to heaven later if you say a prayer and agree with a set of things now, right? So eternal life's later. Salvation doesn't actually transform me. It doesn't take over my life. It's a part of, a little bit of, a portion of my life. It's in my religious sphere. So, so like you guys in the back row by the wall right there, like Gabe, what would you say the gospel is that Jesus preached? In here, last week or the week before, what did I say Jesus preached, the gospel he Jesus preached? Oh, you guys are bailing him out. You don't like that pressure? You didn't like the pressure that I was feeling right there? So the gospel Jesus preached is not later on when you die, you can go to heaven. Even though that's true, isn't it? But his gospel was something about the kingdom, according to this lady right here. The kingdom of God is where? When? Well, what difference does that make for us today? Eternal life is more like divine life, isn't it? Than it is about the duration of the life. Of course, it lasts forever. But the eternal part means it's an unkillable kind of life. The nature is indestructible and immortal. So it's not just about getting bit by a vampire and then not dying. That would be eternal life by that definition, but it would be an eternal life of a nature that makes you into a predator that's hellish. It's strange, isn't it, to think about the idea that my biggest problem is me because I was born, I inherited something from our ancient ancestor parents that made me me me-centered and independent. I was disconnected from the Father, and my reference point for everything became me, 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 me. And God is you, 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 you. He is love. He is other-centered, self-giving love. Naturally, we all belong to a kingdom that, that is dominating our hearts and lives so that we are me-centered people. Because who is the original me-centered person who said to Adam and Eve, did God really say, can you really trust God? Does God really love you? Do you really have everything you need in him? Don't you have to do for yourself? Don't you have to take matters into your own hands if you really want to be alive and happy? So I said, eternal life, four minutes and 30 seconds, starts now. I said, the gospel is that the kingdom of God is at hand here and now. And that Jesus is actually inviting us into a completely different way of being in the world. I want to quick talk about interfacing our kingdom with God's kingdom. I don't know if you know this, but you have a kingdom. God has a kingdom. And what's a kingdom? I'll give you a definition. Glad you asked. A kingdom is the effective range of your will. 
A kingdom is the effective range of your will. It's the sphere your will can influence and shape. So God's kingdom is the, is the sphere his will can affect. Wherever God's will holds sway is his kingdom. Wherever your will holds sway is your kingdom. Did you know your personhood is built on your kingdom? To be self-aware, have consciousness, have memory, be aware of yourself and the ability to have volition, to exercise your will and make choices, that is your personhood. And your kingdom is intimately connected to your personhood. The problem is every one of us being disconnected from God and his kingdom stopped being free. Free will, so you would say, is the essence of having a kingdom. For me to exercise any kind of kingdom authority, I have to be free to make choices. But since Adam and Eve ate the fruit and we inherited a nature from them, we're actually not free. Our will had become ensnared. So the first thing that Jesus restores to you when you say your big yes to him, and again, your big yes to him doesn't mean, Lord, I agree with the logic of the cross. That's not salvation. Salvation is, I surrender my life to you. I receive your free gift of life in exchange for the dead life I was living. I'm throwing away this thing that's dominating me to receive this thing that you're offering me. It's not that he's demanding obedience. It's that the ability to receive what he's offering demands it. I can't receive what he's offering and hold on to all the stuff that's taken up that space in my heart. And the first thing I receive back from God when I say my big yes to Jesus is I get my kingdom back. I get my freedom back. I'm no longer a slave to sin, says Romans 6, verse 11. So much of the time we think I'm still a dirty, rotten sinner and I don't know why God loves me. And we have more faith in our old nature. We have more faith in what we used to be. We have more faith in our sin nature than we do in the gospel, than we have in the idea that what he says is true about me. He says, I give you my kingdom. And along with it comes back your freedom, which means your kingdom. Then every single day, since he has set me free, I get to choose to line my heart up with heaven. Remember me saying a few weeks back, one time God said to me, Tim, the story you're telling, there it is, about your life on earth is not the story we're telling in heaven. Remember the time I, I was wearing my little, um, what's the Converse, Converse All-Stars? I walked out, I was taking out the trash, and I was trying to put the trash can in position. I kicked it to try to get the bottom of it to move in compliance with my will, and it disobeyed, and my ankle, I kicked it in my ankle, just right against the hard bottom of the thing, and it hurt so bad. And the first thing out of my mouth, before I even think, the first thing out of my mouth was... Dang it, Miller, you idiot. And instantly the Holy Spirit said, don't you talk to me that way. And I said, I didn't. I didn't talk to you that way, Lord. I talked to me that way. 
And he said, don't you know you and I are one? See, in the fall, we became separate from God in our minds. In the kingdom, we become reunited with the Father. And he and I are one. But the thinking I had was, when I talk about me, I'm talking about me and not him. I am radically one with Jesus, but I wasn't thinking like it yet. I'm radically loved by the Father. He considers me worth the blood of his son. He didn't waste his blood on me. He doesn't regret it. He doesn't love me because he has to. He likes me. There's no condemnation in Christ, which means there's no self-righteousness in God that causes him to compare me to him and then become disgusted with how screwed up I still am. That's what condemnation is. It's when you and I look at other people, compare them to us, consider ourselves, I would never do such a thing like that. How dare they? They disgust me. And then we heap judgment and blame on them for how they are. That's called condemnation. And it's completely satanic. It's not in his kingdom. It's not how he's relating to me. And it's not how, he's, it's not how Jesus related to people. And it's not how we're called to relate to people. But a lot of times we haven't yet lined up our head and our heart to who we've become in him. And we grew up in a family that taught us blame, manipulation, shame, anger, punishment. Those are the only tools, condemnation in other words. Some of us grew up in those, we don't even know how you would relate to other people without condemnation. We don't even have a clue that that's even a thing. You hurt me, I yell at you. You misbehave, I, I find ways to make your life miserable till you submit. And we literally look in the Bible and go, that must, that's how God is too. And we twist the Bible up into a thing, and that's how then we do kingdom. Meanwhile, Jesus will confront sin very honestly without judgment. He will make judgments about behavior without making any judgments about you or your value. He's able to rebuke me in such a way that if I have a healthy identity, I am like alive and I feel so loved by his correction. But if I'm still rooted in lies, I won't be able to separate what he's saying about my behavior from my identity. It's extremely difficult to bring correction into, into the life of someone who doesn't know who they are in Christ. Because any pushback or even disagreement attacks this fragile, pathetic shell of insecurity because I don't know who I am. So if you don't like what I did or if you said I did something wrong, our whole relationship's probably at stake and certainly my identity is. It's the wildest thing when this revelation that I am my beloved's and his desire is for me or what we sang this morning, Abba, I belong to you or what Jesus is bringing us into You are the sons and daughters of the kingdom. I bestow on you a kingdom. You're going to reign with my father. The father himself loves you. I no longer, John 15, 15, I no longer call you slaves. You are my friends. This wild, outrageous, lavish place we have in the kingdom of God that seems so beyond us. And and it's interfacing my kingdom with his. First, I say my yes to him, and his love comes home. 
And now I have a permanent relationship with him and I'm not under law. That's a whole sermon and I want to do that one day. Romans 7, 1 through 14. I had to die to the law to marry Jesus because as long as I'm under law, as long as I'm under just moral obligations, as long as I'm under just do the right thing, do your duty, as long as I'm relating to a list of rules and doctrines, that will actually bring sin to life. I'll be, as long as I'm under law, I'm in the weakness of the flesh and sin will come alive and eat my lunch and I will relate to Romans 7, 14 through 25. I don't understand what I do. For the good I want to do, I can't do. And the bad I don't want to do, that's the only thing I do. And I've heard Christians my whole life say that's the normal Christian life, that the godlier you are, the more you'll hate yourself, essentially. When actually Romans 7 is him explaining why what he's saying has been so important through Romans 4, 5, 6, and on the way to 8. About how, listen, sin keeps eating our lunch and law actually causes the problem to be more exposed but doesn't lift a finger. In fact, it actually drives the nail home deeper. You got to get out from under law. You got to die to law to be able to marry Jesus so that you can belong to grace, so that you can belong to love. And that will actually create from the heart power over sin. Union. So your eyes are no longer on the problem. Did you know like when you pray really hard about the problem, you're, you're, you're glorifying and praising and, man, and like magnifying the problem? The more you pray about the problem, the bigger the problem is going to get in your understanding. A great way that we worship the devil is to pray a lot about the devil. We sing louder when we're more scared. We declare more Bible promises when we're more freaked out. And all it shows is that we're already on the run. When Jesus actually got real calm in the midst of his trials and storms. He didn't need the band to dial up to 10 so he could get faith going. Okay, so interfacing your kingdom. You wake up every morning, I am the beloved because Jesus died and freed me from that whole thing. I'm no longer a slave to sin. This is how you pray, guys. Father, I thank you that this morning there's no condemnation because I'm in Christ Jesus. I am not a slave to sin. I am beloved. I am worth the blood of Jesus. Jesus, you took that cross for me. You took the crown of thorns for Tim. You were whipped for Tim. You were bruised for Tim. You were rejected for Tim. You were stripped and humiliated and abandoned to heal all those parts in me where I felt abandoned by people and rejected and betrayed. My sin was taken away and the sins committed against me were taken away. It's just as if I've never sinned because I'm in Jesus. And you're making it within me and in my heart and in my mind just as if I've never been sinned against. That's the gospel. I have the power of the Lord to do the will of God today. I'm the will of God on planet earth. It is God's will and intention that I be here. This, this body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I am in you, and today I'm lining my heart up with heaven. And even though it's just a regular day in Seaford, just a regular old day in Seaford, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit, and I walk with you. I don't have to drum you up, you're with me. I don't have to make your prophecies and promises come true over my life through diligence and faithfulness and remembering them and applying them. I can forget all those prophecies and go after the heart of intimacy with you those prophecies call me to and know that you're going to fulfill those prophecies. I can be led by the Spirit in the details and you'll take care of the big picture. And I forgive the people who have hurt me in Jesus' name. And I forgive them and I forgive them by name. 
and I receive your forgiveness, God, and you take care of our bills, God. You take care of our food. You take care of our electric bill. You take care of our cars, God. You care about the practical stuff of my regular life, God. And Holy Spirit, I'm going to be tempted today. Holy Spirit, I'm going to be tempted today. I have an enemy in my soul today. So I ask in Jesus' name you'd help me because you know I'm weak and I know I'm weak and I can't do this without you. So I look for you for help. You're my partner in this, Holy Spirit. You're my helper. You don't come to condemn me. You're my helper, so you come to help me. You show up. Holy Spirit shows up every day. He says, I'm here to help. What can I do to help? I'd like to help. You need wisdom? I'm here to help. You need comfort? I'm here to help. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father as my high priest, and he is literally interceding for me. And you look at his hands, and he's got scars in his hands. Right now, and you know what the scars are saying? This one's mine. It's like the blood over the doorpost in Egypt. And the avenging angel walks past and says, this one's covered. This one's God's. This one's covered. This one's in covenant. The faithfulness of God's coming to this one because of the blood. Not because of how well they live today, but because of the blood. Hebrew says the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was murdered, right? Abel was murdered. And, the, and God said that when he was talking to Cain, that your brother Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. What was Abel's blood crying out from the ground? What the blood of all people who've been murdered. What all victims of genocide or murder of all these injustices always cry out to God whose heart is incredibly loving. The blood of a righteous Abel murdered is crying out, condemn, 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 pay back. And the blood of Jesus, Hebrew says, is crying out something different on your behalf, Pete, on my behalf. It's crying out, bless, forgive, forgive, forgive. So Jesus, you're praying for me, but also your very presence in heaven as the slain lamb is interceding for me. This is the truth over your life. This is how you pray, guys. You don't go to God with a list of your sins and failures and the people who are sick and broken and how the world's going to pot and this and that. If you do that, you're rooting yourself in the problem instead of the answer. And you'll find you're not praying in faith and your prayers don't have power. Spend the first few years of your Christian life praying worship and thanksgiving and and dwelling on the finished work of Jesus and let who you are to him become huge in your understanding. The guy, the kid in youth group that I was talking about, if he would get alone, if he would have gotten alone with God and, and stopped saying all these words, trying to say, well, what's the right thing to say? Who cares? There's no wrong thing to say to God. There's no wrong thing. But if he would get in the presence of God alone with no one else there, shut the door and say, you love me. Father, you love me. You love me. You love me. I belong to you. You love me. Jesus, you died for me. I'm yours. My sins are forgiven. I was going to hell forever, and that's what I deserved. I deserved it. That's what I deserve. God, you would have been right to throw me in a pit of fiery punishment forever, and you had no desire to do it, and you grabbed me out of that destiny, and you put me in your son, Jesus, because you love me, and I'm never going there. In fact, I'm going to be with you both now and forever. We'll never be apart. I haven't been alone since the day I said my yes to you, and I'll never be alone. How could I be rejected when the only one who matters has already accepted me? Lord, would you teach me to be so rooted in what you say that I can love those who hate me? And I'm not hurt by it. I don't need to call 14 friends on the phone and go through counseling for 25 years. 
to be okay, that I'm actually okay, and I'm not pretending to be okay. Get me there, God. Be rooted in your prayers in who God is, who God is for you. And if you can't pray big, like if, if you're like, dude, I, I don't even know all that theology you just said. That's fine. Start here. You love me, God. You're with me. You love me, God. You're with me. I belong to you. Line my will up with yours today, God. Your love, that's what you are. You are love. So line me up with love today, God. I want to do everything I do as love for you. That's how we interface our kingdom with his kingdom. That's how we walk in the kingdom. That's how we walk out the kingdom. All right, can you get the prayer team up here? The other week, we had half the prayer team go around the room and pray for people. And I really, really liked that. Just so you guys know, you are doing us a huge favor anytime you let the prayer team pray for you. You're not here for the prayer team to fix you. That's not what's going on. Everyone on the prayer team has basically made a commitment. I want to learn how to live out cooperation with the Holy Spirit. I want to learn how to hear God better. So whenever you let them pray for you, you're helping us learn how to hear God better. And then giving us feedback. When you said that one thing, that was like, whoa, how did you know that? That was really helpful. Or when you said this, I really felt the Spirit. Or when you said that one thing, I... That didn't resonate with me at all. All that is extremely helpful because how in the world are we going to know how, whether we're in tune with God if we don't have tactile feedback? I had a guy tell me one time, if, uh, if someone has the gift of healing, everyone they pray for is going to be healed. And if someone has a gift of prophecy, they'll never miss it. They'll never get any details wrong. And I'm like, that's kind of like saying if somebody has the gift of walking, they'll never trip and fall down. And if someone has the gift of music, they'll never sing a sour note. Even Jesus had to pray twice for the one blind guy. You remember that? If Jesus can pray twice, and he's the son of God, I'm pretty sure I can pray 15 times. And how in the world are we supposed to learn how to prophesy if we have to get it perfect on day one? That is so Old Testament. If the entire church can prophesy, and we're required to evaluate prophecies and measure and hold on to the good and reject what's not, (laughs) Um, I work at a rehab Um, one of the clients came in and she has liver cancer she's a veteran so she's down on a veteran's wing she came in pretty defeated depression didn't come out of her room hardly at all and I would go into her room and talk with her and pray with her and whatever Um, she wasn't coming out of her room at all so the organization I I go in and do an uh, outside meeting 12-step faith-based meeting at nighttime on Thursdays. And the founder brought a guy with him that had went through the rehab, and he shared his story. Now, she wasn't in there. She's still isolating in her room. But he shared his story, and it's very, very similar. Um, He came in with liver cancer and was just ready to die. So after he shared, I sent somebody to go get her. I was like, she needs to hear this. Go get her. So she came down, and I sent him over to talk to her while we finished out the meeting. So that night, she asked me to lead her in the um, salvation prayer, and I did. And then after that, she was very devoted. I'd go to her room to get her for a meeting. She's on her knees on the floor just praising God. Thursday, Thursday during my shift, she's sitting there in a chair. I was like, you okay? And she just jumps up into my arms, bawling. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. That's all she keeps saying to me. I'm uncertain of what's going on at this point in time. 
I end up learning uh, the ambulance comes to get her. Her oncologist had called and her blood work was concerning, so they wanted her to go to the hospital and have some blood transfusion done and have some scans done of her liver. And so that night when I go back to do the meeting, she's in the meeting and I'm like, how'd things go? And she said, I'll talk to you outside when we're done. So I did my share and then somebody else started sharing and she's in the back of the room doing this, pulling me out into the hallway. I go into the hallway and she just leaps into my arms and hugs me and she says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I said, what's going on? She said, they did three different scans and there's no lesions on her liver.